from Stanford University and KZSU. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I don't know, I never knew where my food came from. Because I grew up in a city. And, you know, once, once you start knowing, it changes everything. And then the world becomes open to great green vegetables. I live in the heart of San Francisco, and a farm just opened down my street. So, of course, I have to go check it out. I've never cared for the country. In fact, I've only lived in big cities. But I am French, and I love food. And the idea of super fresh vegetables really appeals to me. So I walk to the free farm at the corner of Goth and Eddie. But it's December and the farm has barely started. All I can see is guys in plaid flannel shirts and sneakers digging mud on a slanted empty lot. Then it starts raining. It's obvious I won't get my hands on local veggies anytime soon. But still, I go over and I ask these guys in their flannel shirts and their muddy sneakers a ton of questions. How many hours do you have to put in before you get anything you can eat? Is it a good workout? That's when one of them, Paige Chamberlain, dares me to fill a wheelbarrow and take it down the hill. So I take his warm yellow gloves and his shovel and I start digging. Then something strange happens. As I plant the shovel into the ground over and over again, my body remembers something. I am flooded by a physical memory of my mother digging to plant for white tulip bulbs in our backyard. She was the one digging, but it's my knee that wants to lift up so I can press down on the shovel with my foot and dig deeper. There I am, outside in the rain, wearing a stranger's gloves, all in the name of good food, and remembering my mother in her stonewashed blue jeans. I can feel her body through my body. My knee comes up and I see hers come up. My foot pushes down and I see hers push down. Both of us making room for new, growing things. And that is when it hits me. All the talk, all the attention to food we experience these days. Eating better, eating organic, growing your own food, you name it. It's not just about food. When we talk about food today, we're talking about something else. When we talk about Obama's kitchen garden, the loss and recovery of cooking at home, of slow food, we're talking about our relationships to the environment, to our bodies, and more than anything, we're talking about our worldviews. This is especially true for those of us who live in cities, who mostly experience food in grocery stores and restaurants through the machinery and networks of urban life. When we change how we relate to food, we change a lot of things. Food becomes a kind of medium for changing our lives. Hi, I'm Natasha Ruck. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project, and today we're going to explore how food has become this medium of change, especially for us city dwellers. We have four stories for you, all looking at the experiences of people working the land for food inside the city, and how these experiences have changed them in surprising ways. We will see how food becomes a vehicle, a medium for profound changes in our daily lives. We're calling our show Medium Food. In the next hour, we're going to explore how urban farmers use picking, growing, and giving local food as a medium to connect to people and nature around them, and doing so recreate themselves and their city. Our first story takes us to one of San Francisco's toughest neighborhoods to look at tender shoots growing on the rooftops of the Tenderloin. And by tender shoots, I mean fifth graders learning to grow, cook, and eat Swiss chard and rethink their relationship to food. Our second story takes us to the Garden for the Environment to experience how the rhythms of the natural world can jibe with the beat of the urban landscape. Our third story explores how urban farmers in the Mission District of San Francisco are trying to create a new kind of exchange with their neighbors, using Brussels sprouts, salsa, and seedlings. Our fourth and final story takes us to the farm. Here in Palo Alto, we meet with two Stanford students who discovered that our campus isn't just a pretty background to study unstable isotopes, but a living, growing, delicious, Garden of Eden. For the Stanford Storytelling Project and 90.1 FM KZSU Stanford, I'm Natasha Ruck, 
Stay with us. Our first story takes a look at how the seed of urban farming gets planted and blossoms in one of the city's toughest neighborhoods, the Tenderloin. For city kids, the tastiest meal may well be pizza and Twinkies from 7-Eleven. But on the rooftop of Glad Church in the Tenderloin, urban farmers are trying to change that. Enter fresh vegetables, kale pesto and Swiss chard tamales. And perhaps, for city kids, a new experience of food that will change their relations to the environment around them and their bodies. I like vegetables because they make you grow um, taller. How do you teach a child who lives in an urban jungle of concrete with barely a tree in sight where his food comes from? Can you really teach a city kid not only to enjoy green vegetables, but to relate to them, to understand their connection to the earth and the seasons and their impact on health? This is where Maya Donaldson from Graze the Roof and Chef Becca come in. It seems like an impossible mission, but urban farmers are very resourceful. And if they can't plant a seed in the ground, they'll take it to the roof. Hi! My name is Nathan, and my favorite thing for coming to the garden is planting some stuff. Uh, my name is Angel, and my best part about gardening is when I get the water, the water gun, and then I go like, tss, and I put it at everybody. My name is Arturo, and I, and I, and I love about the environment is that uh, he gave us food and all that, and I like coming to the garden to wet the plants. My name is Maya, and I'm the rooftop garden organizer. And my favorite thing about the garden on the rooftop is because I get to have fun with all of the young students at FYCC and inspire them to care about the, their environment and learn how to grow food from planting a seed, taking care of it, watering it, all the way through harvesting vegetables and learning how to cook very delicious meals with all the produce that they're growing up in the garden. We're at Glad Church and the garden is up top on the roof. We're in Glad Church and the garden is on the rooftop. We come here every Thursday. Um, the vegetables are good here because they are made from the garden, 100% natural, and they help our eyes and our digestive system. This is quite an unlikely garden growing on the 900-square-foot roof at Glide Memorial Church in the heart of downtown San Francisco. To get there, you take the elevator to the top floor, walk up a flight of stairs, Turn off the security system and unlock a door. When you step outside, apartment buildings surround you, and the church steeple seems within arm's reach. Yet standing on the gravel-covered roof are dozens of elevated garden beds made from milk crates, and they're bursting with leafy greens of all sorts, Swiss chard, mustard green, kale, arugula. It is such an unlikely place, you can't help but wonder how it came about. And of course, like everything else, it began with one person's dedication. And this person is Maya Donaldson. Maya now bears the strange title of rooftop garden organizer. But when she first moved to the city, her first San Francisco garden didn't turn out so great. Um, when I first moved to the city, I had never lived in the city before. Of course, I lived in an apartment complex and we didn't have any uh, outdoor space. And there was a small patio on our apartment building. And so of course I wanted to, to try to um, see if I could grow food on that patio space. So I just took two small planters and I brought them up to the rooftop and I filled them with soil and added, you know, I started planting lettuce and carrots and then our landlord actually forced me to take the planter containers off the rooftop um, right before they were ready to be harvested. <laughs> so that was my first experience gardening in the city was I was told that there was no way I could keep those planter boxes on the rooftop. But urban gardeners are like ivy. You try to suppress them and they find a more fertile ground to grow. Maya knew plants could thrive on San Francisco's rooftops. Maybe not in her own house, 
but surely she'd find a place to make it work. And then I actually had an internship with a nonprofit in Oakland called Bay Localize, and I worked on their rooftop resources project. So they their project actually um, analyzed the potential and also advocated for rooftop garden development, uh, but also like solar technologies and living roof technologies and rainwater catchment technology. And through my internship there, I got inspired to um, think about the possibility of creating a community uh, rooftop garden somewhere in the Bay Area. And so they actually told me about a grant opportunity for a young person to complete an environmental project. Um, I was looking for a community site, and that's when Glide came forward as uh, an organization that would be interested in developing their rooftop space into an edible garden. And so we wrote the pr proposal, and then we successfully received the grant, and then we started about a year and a half ago. The Tenderloin is an interesting neighborhood in San Francisco just because of the diversity that exists here. And then also the average income of people that live here is um, pretty low. So it's a rough and tough neighborhood. Um, there's a lot of drug abuse um, that you see on the streets, and it's not really a neighborhood that you would want to walk around by yourself at night. There's a very high percentage of young people that live in the Tenderloin, and I don't think that's known. They're the ones that are affected by the fact that they don't have a lot of healthy food options around them. You know, people are buying really unhealthy food um, because that's what's marketed to them and that's what's available at, at corner stores. It's one thing to think of a way to get kids to garden so they can learn to grow and cook vegetables, but doing it is something else entirely. So what we're going to do today is everyone is going to be able to harvest one charred leaf. And I want you to find the biggest Swiss chard leaf that you can find and then you're gonna get a chance to harvest it when you're done harvesting it I want you to go around and line up at the door again because then we're gonna go down to the kitchen you know what plant this is uh, I don't know Swiss chard yep now use both hands very carefully and clip it perfect which one's the biggest Leaf. That one? Is that the tallest or the biggest? Oh, can I get two? There are 15 kids on the rooftop. They range from 7 to 10 years old, and each one of them is holding one green and purple Swiss chard leaf like a trophy. I wonder how can you possibly turn this into food they would want to eat? Who could accomplish such a feat? Oh, this is the fourth month I, I emailed Maya and I said, you know, what do we have? What's in season? What are we going to be cooking with? And she emailed me back and she said, well, we have kale, Swiss chard and mustard greens. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the fourth month we've done, we've done, you know, green leafy vegetables with, with a bunch of kindergartners, first grade and second graders. Um, so we've done kale pesto, we've done cabbage pesto, we've done kale chips in the oven, we've done Swiss chard rolls stuffed with ricotta cheese and sundry tomatoes, and now we're doing kale tamales. So for the average person, getting a uh, kindergartner to eat kale once is a feat worthy of a medal. This is, this is times four, four-time Olympic kale winner. <laughs> Today! Chef Becca might be an Olympic kale winner, but as the children gather in the kitchen to wash their hands in complete chaos, I begin to doubt her ability to create something with them, let alone edible Swiss chard tamales. But her method is worthy of a Roman general strategy, divide and conquer. She creates different task force of no more than four kids, Maya and another teacher, as well as three teenage student helpers take command of each team. There is Team Cheese, in charge of crumbling the queso fresco, Team Massa, responsible for mixing the dough, and Team Guacamole. As they divide the work around the big conference table covered in cellophane, Chef Becca takes Team Swiss chard to the actual kitchen stove. All right, let's turn that off. So make sure we don't get our faces close to this because this is hot and you might get burned. Do you remember what you put in it? What were the things you put in it? What's this green leaf? Giovanni. Do you remember what this is? What we picked on the rooftop? Swiss chard. Swiss chard, you're right. And what about, what about these white 
What about these white things that we chopped up? What are the, what's that? Onion. Um, onion. Onion. And what about this that we peeled? Garlic. 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 Ooh, that looks beautiful. Look at the caramelization. Do you see that, that lovely golden color you have to those onions that were once white? Caramelization is when the sugars concentrate in the vegetable and you get a really delicious concentrated flavor. Beautiful. Here, let me help you. You hold the pot. It's a heavy pot. Wow. All right, you guys. Now comes the fun part. We're going to combine all, right, all this stuff. Back in the classroom, everyone assembled around the conference table has accomplished their task. Where should your bottom be? I need you your bottom on that seat. And I need you facing forward and listening to Chef Becca. Can I have you three from the cheese group come up, please? All three of you in the cheese group. Everybody add one scoop of the cheese. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it. Two scoops? Just one. And then pass it down. What do you guys mm. think? Does it taste like a, the, the inside of a tamale? I have it. Mm. Good. Yeah. good. Oh, why didn't it taste good, sweetheart? Because it tastes nasty. Oh, you mean because it's not cooked yet? Um, well, I was uh, checking for seasoning. I was checking for salt. Um, just make sure that it was seasoned enough. And it tastes like corn and like uh, onions that we've sauteed, Swiss chard from the garden, and the queso fresco is a salty Mexican cheese. So I got a little hint of that coming through as well. And a little bit of cilantro, maybe not, maybe not enough. Now there is a full assembly of kids, and there is something for each one of them to do. Fill corn husks with tamale mixture and make the actual final product. One, two, three, eyes on me. One, two, three, eyes on me. Everybody, give me your two-piece fingers to show that you're listening. Peace fingers, peace fingers. Eyes up here. Everybody is getting one corn husk because what we're going to do is we're going to take our tamale mixture and we're going to put it inside of our corn husk and roll it up. But if you don't listen to directions, you're not going to know how to do it, okay? Eyes up here, guys. So we're going to take and we're going to go like this. We're going to let everybody lift up their tamale and put their fingers underneath it and roll it back and forth. Give it a little shimmy. We want to make a little cylinder, a little tube, like a little snake out of our masa corn mixture. Yeah. And once, once you guys have your little snake, once you have your little tube made of the masa corn mixture, we're going to fold the tail up. Everybody fold the tail up. So that means student helpers. Kevin and Derek and Anna, you guys can take them to the next phase of rolling. Beautiful. And now Chef Becca's secret weapon, the microwave. Corn tamale would normally be steamed for an hour, but the ones we made are pretty tiny and the microwave is good enough to steam them. Let's see. You know what, they're super duper duper hot. Don't touch yet. I said they're really hot. I like it. You want one? Another one. What about you? Another one. I like it. I want to eat all yours. Why do I do this? Um, well, because because I can, you know. I thought for a while that everybody knew how to cook until I realized that um, not not everybody, not everybody has it in them. Like I mean, I'm I always took my passion for granted and thought, gosh, you know, if people just wanted to cook, they could. I don't think it's like that. I think that people need somebody to invoke the passion, and I carry I carry a lot with me in terms of you know willingness and desire to make time in my schedule to come and do this. So I do it. It makes me feel good. Um, I like to give back. I like to. I like to look at their little faces. I love when they just like open up and they're like, oh wow, this is actually really good. So I get a lot of satisfaction out of it and it just makes me feel good to spread what I know. Thank you, Chef Becca. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank That's you. very nice. That's very good. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah, I did. Cool. I'm sorry I didn't get to eat more, but oh, they were... I like it. I liked you guys. Thanks I learned a lot so and I take it home. Awesome. Have a nice night. Yeah, you too. So that's why I do it. You know, a healthy habits definitely start when you're young, um, and they carry through. You know, the stuff that these kids learn here, I think they'll probably remember forever. This is a Stanford storytelling project and 90.1 FM KZSU Stanford. I'm Natasha Ruck. Today, in Medium Food, we're exploring how food has become a medium for profound changes in our daily lives, especially in urban America.
In this next story, we're looking at how the urban farming tune joins the chorus of the city. The urban landscape offers its own concert, with its wind tunnels and car horn sections, its allegro tempo. But what happens when you bring the adagio of nature into the mix? Can you get the rhythms of the natural world to jibe with the beat of the city? Coming next is a soundtrack of country and city combined. And on the way, we'll discover what urban farmers are made of. Let's eat some peas. Have you ever had a snow pea? Off the vine. Sometimes I'll come over here if I forget to eat breakfast or if I don't have enough time to eat breakfast and I'll just munch off the peas for, for a few minutes and that's breakfast. Here, try one. My name is Susie Palladino and we're at Garden for the Environment in San Francisco. It's a half acre demonstration garden over in the Inner Sunset neighborhood. It's been here for about 20 years. We're, in fact, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary on... Um, this is a regular thing. <laughs> we are really in the city. Believe it or not, it's the sound of car radios and horns and just the flow of traffic that is a reminder <laughs> that you're in the city. Although being in this garden really makes you feel, or makes me feel pretty far from the city. Hi, I'm Paul Jaber. I'm a resident of San Francisco. And uh, yeah, we're hanging out here at the Garden for the Environment, our little local uh, community demonstration educational garden. And uh, yeah, it's a peaceful place, even in the heart of the city. A lot of people come here and they walk in. They're just amazed at the nature and the diversity and the color. It's always full of uh, flowers and uh, hummingbirds and bees and butterflies. This is pretty now. It's blooming. It's blooming now. This is red currant. It's a beautiful plant. Uh, here's a tree mallow, and it's blooming also. See beautiful uh, purple, fl pink flowers this time of year. We have sage over here, this greenish one. Come and smell it, it's really good. It's a nice pungent odor, it's beautiful. Yeah, I love this plant. I grew up spending weekends and summers and a lot of time on my aunt and uncle's farm. They live on a, in a farm outside of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, in this very small town called Pofftown, North Carolina. They grew all of their own food for themselves and for friends and neighbors. And they had um, animals. At one point, they had llamas and goats and chickens and pigs and five dogs and four cats and I don't know what else. <laughs> I actually got my inspiration for gardening here from the Garden for the Environment. I used to walk through here on the way to the local shopping district. And I was amazed at all the different kind of vegetables that they grew here. I grew up in San Francisco, and the weather, of course, you know, it's foggy and overcast often. So, I mean, I couldn't imagine that, uh, you know, in my own mind that you could grow a whole lot of different things here. But, uh, no, they grew a huge variety of vegetables here, and I was just amazed. Uh, peas and lettuces and uh, zucchinis and, uh, wow, just celery and carrots and beets. And I was really amazed at it was like, you know, more diversity of vegetables than you'd even find in the local supermarket. And I was just amazed that you could actually grow so many things in, in San Francisco climate and San Francisco weather, San Francisco soil. So, yeah, that's how I sort of got uh, amazed and uh, just kind of really got into it. It just seemed like a perfect place for me. So I sold my car packed up two suitcases and bought a one-way ticket to San Francisco <laughs> and said, all right, I'm going to make this work. So I started volunteering and learning about growing vegetables. And then I took the knowledge that I, I learned from here and I, I applied it in my own place. And I, I grow vegetables in my own house too. I'm lucky I have a backyard where I get about eight hours of sun a day. So um, yeah, it's a small backyard, but I cram a lot into a small space. And I grow quite a bit of vegetables at my own house, plenty for me and extra to share with friends and family. I have some uh, blueberries and raspberries and strawberries and apple trees along with all the vegetables. So every year I increase the uh, diversity and the amount of food and the, and the variety of food uh, and improve the uh, fertility of the soil. And uh, it's working out really well. Seems like there's always food to eat. Tw 12 months a year, there's always something growing. So I moved to San Francisco and I arrived here wondering. I wanted to to be able to activate that that passion for for farming and for working the land 
but I was in, in a, the second most dense city in the country. And I was like, how is this going to work? <laughs> how does this come together? And I was fortunate enough to stumble upon Garden for the Environment. It's a community garden, but the purpose of the garden is different than other community gardens. We, we're a teaching garden, so people come here to learn. For the volunteers that do show up, we try and make sure that everything they're doing has some sort of educational value to it so that it's not just weeding. We want to be sure that, that people that come and, and volunteer with us know why they're weeding and what they're weeding and, and the purpose of weeding in, this, in the greater um, garden plan. We don't get involved too much in politics, uh, but mostly just uh, spreading the word on uh, education about uh, composting and gardening and, you know, what people are capable of if they have the time and the patience. You know, it's all about, uh, you know, treading lightly on the earth. So, yeah, if you can uh, save resources and not, you know, you know, save resources and reuse resources, it's always a good thing. So, again, it's a, it's a demonstration for people to understand different ways to... Uh, yeah, save the environment. We're going to save the world. So, uh, this is small little things like this can make a big difference in the long run. Urban agriculture, growing your own food, is is relevant and necessary for the times. Um, there's an interest for it. There's a passion for it. But there's also a need for it in that um, things are changing. There's global warming. There's um, peak oil. There's this term called food miles, and it's basically how far your food travels from farm to plate. And currently the food miles are 1,500 miles. So you can imagine how dependent we are on oil to, to ensure that people are eating and to ensure that uh, people are not going hungry. And so we have to, as you know, a collective group, come up with solutions to, to that. One of the solutions is supporting urban agriculture projects or, or gardening projects or, or people that are interested in growing their own food so that they, we can reduce the miles that our food travels. When I started my backyard, my soil was quite poor. And I imagined that I'd have a hard time at first, and I did. The first year was somewhat of a failure, but I, I kind of expected and anticipated that. But I stuck with it. And at first, you fight the uh, pest and the soil fertility, but uh, the longer you've been doing it, you develop more, uh, you know, uh, expertise and more tricks. Uh, the the pest, uh, what happens with the pest is kind of incredible. I mean, the way it works is first you plant the plants, and then the uh, the pests come, the aphids and such, but if you have a little patience after a year or two, the predators start moving in. The predators balance out the pests. So the first couple of years, typically kind of hard, but if you just stick with it, eventually nature will find a, a nice balance, and the nature will do a lot of the work, and then you don't have to work so hard. So, um, yeah, and as the soil gets better, the plants grow faster, faster than the bugs can eat them. I guess that's kind of the, kind of the key. <laughs> you want them to grow faster than, than the bugs can eat them. There is a lack of space for growing, and so there's a lot of people fighting over a very little amount of land. But, but you can also get creative. I mean, if, if you don't have access to the earth, you can, you can do container gardening, um, you can do rooftop gardening. You know, you, can't, you obviously can't have like a, a thriving farm on top of a roof. The roof just can't sustain that weight. But you could do a container of, of salad greens or... Um, a couple of different containers of, of leafy greens. So there's not, there's not a ton of space, that, but that's not to say that um, you, can't, you can't be an urban farmer and you can't support a, a, you know, a different type of food system. I think everybody has the potential to grow at least some vegetables, even if you grow just uh, one or two different things, uh, some Swiss chard or lettuce in a bucket, five-gallon pickle bucket. I mean, even that's something, uh, you know. Over the last year, our workshop participation has doubled. So that means that twice as many more people are are finding out about our programs, but also showing up to learn about them and to learn about growing mushrooms at home and to learn about keeping chickens in the city. It's getting more popular. I think people are kind of getting tired of the fast pace of the city and the uh, hustle and bustle. And yeah, a lot of people just want to 
get back to the earth and grow vegetables. It's getting more popular. More people are coming by and they're interested in what we're doing and they're curious about it. To be able to be working outside, it, there's, no, there's nothing more rewarding than that. Um, to being able, being able to observe the change of the seasons and to be, to be a part of that change and to grow with that change um, is so rewarding and is so insightful. You learn so much about yourself, about your relationship with the living beings, people, plants, animals around you. And so, I think I learned to slow down a lot, kind of uh, live closer to the rhythms of nature, you know, the seasons. And, of course, gardening, you have to cultivate quite a bit of patience. I mean, the city's fast. Everybody, everything happens now. But, yeah, when you, you garden, yeah, you have to learn to cultivate patience. And, uh, you know, the rhythms of nature start becoming a part of you. And uh, you get to slow down and really savor life and enjoy life a lot more. There's so much history in the land. The land just is, is kind of this uh, capsule of, of our history and of our heritage and um, farming or, or getting your hands dirty, growing native plants, just getting out and connecting with the, with the land is the most profound way that we can connect to our history and um, our ancestors. And so, you know, I think there's this romantic side of it of, of, and spiritual side and cultural side of of growing food, of farming, and then there's the the other kind of more activist sort of kind of re reactive side to to creating a, a independence from a food system whose values we don't support, and they kind of the, both things have sort of lined up perfectly and. They're complementing each other, and it's like the more the more you find out about the food system, the more you want to get your hands dirty, and the more you get your hands dirty, the more you connect to your history, and you know they just kind of feed off each other. And I think that all of that is those uh, those connections are swelling right now, and people are are wanting to to dive deeper. It's probably cheaper, actually, if you look at the monetary aspect, it's probably cheaper to just go when you factor in the labor and the time to just go buy your vegetables in the market. But I think when you grow your own vegetables, I just think I live a better life. Uh, you know, uh, I feel better about myself and what I'm doing and the way I'm living. It's a simpler life, a more natural life. And um, yeah, I got a big benefit from it. I think I've learned to live life at a human level, I'd say. Yeah, at a slower pace, at a more natural pace, at, at, at a human pace. So I've got get to turn my back, at least momentarily, on technological speed and technological life and just really be a person and a human again. I think that's what I've learned. I know that I won't live here forever. I'm just not a city girl. But, but what I've learned in here and, and, and what I've learned in San Francisco about gardening and farming um, will certainly influence the rest of my life. You know, I love the city. I've always lived here. I like the energy, the diversity, and but uh, I sort of somewhat get the best of both worlds because I get all the benefits of the city and also get to live this uh, urban farmer lifestyle. So it works out really well for me. I always thought I'd like to live in the country, but I'm kind of used to the energy of the city. I think maybe after a short time I, I might get bored. So I, I think I have, I'm enjoying the best of both worlds here in San Francisco. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project and 90.1 FM KZSU Stanford. I'm Natasha Rock. Today, in Medium Food, we're exploring how food has become a medium for profound changes in our daily lives, especially in urban America. When you live in an urban landscape, everything is so convenient that you often forget how complex a simple act like buying a yogurt at Trader Joe's truly is. My favorite fig yogurt is the result of a complicated system of production, packaging and distribution that has very little to do with actual milk and figs. And I only get to take it home thanks to an arcane financial system that allows me to charge it to my credit card. Our food system could hardly be more remote from the natural source of the food. But in the Mission District of San Francisco, 
urban gleaners and farmers are creating a more transparent type of exchange from seed to plate. The free farm stand is filled with interpersonal human interactions. It is a network for the urban landscape, not quite based on traditional barter and exchanges, but rather it is a cycle of give and take between neighbors akin to the rhythm of gardening the earth, something like watering a plant to watch it grow. Coming next, we mingle with Josh, Tree, Chandra, Wendy, Lewis, Jacqueline, and Zach at the free farm stand. We are in the beautiful uh, weather better than anywhere else in the city part of San Francisco called the Mission. Um, we're, pretty, we're probably about three blocks away from 24th Street Mission BART uh, in this uh, little itty-bitty park with a uh, rec center over to our what to over to the west of us pretty close though probably only about 60 70 feet away we are at the free farmers market that happens every sunday one to three usually uh just came here randomly one day and it was actually started coming when there were barely even a line of 20 and then during the summer it sprung up to like probably close to hundreds before uh, before we opened up come around and get some free food so they're pretty and some tomatoes. What's that? Cool. Everybody has to make no. Ah, uh, look at that, guys. Isn't that beautiful? Whoa! Are you not a Brussels sprout lover? No. Everybody has uh, their calling or what they like to do, their passion, some kind of core thing. And uh, I think with me, it's always been trying to help make the world a little better or trying to uh, repair the world. So um, gardening uh, is one way of doing that. Of Not just for yourself, it's healing. It helps center a person and helps one stay sane, healthy. So I like to do gardening for that reason alone. But um, I'm on this mission right now of growing food to give away to people. Uh, we got some leeks, we got some celery, um, what else do we got? Grapefruit, oranges, uh, squash, um, Brussels sprouts. Um, oh, we have an assortment of bread and also some mushrooms. I haven't put the mushrooms quite out yet though. Actually, on the side where people first see, those are the one, those are leftovers from farmer's markets, and it's usually produce that has to do a little bit of travel. But uh, further to the end are actual super local um, vegetables where they are picked out of community gardens in the San Francisco area. Uh, so these greens came from a backyard that, um, it's a long story, I'll tell you the story later, from a woman's backyard. She'll probably come by with more of these um, scallions. This woman just came by, Wendy, with some greens from her school garden or somewhere, I'm not sure where. Those are sprouts that I grew, red clover, and I grew the um, sunflower greens. Uh, this is broccoli that we grew at 18th in Rhode Island, the permaculture garden. Those are grapefruit that came from Stanford uh, gleaning program. Yes, I got grapefruits. Oh, you sound so happy. Aren't you happy to get grapefruits? Grandma's going to be happy. Grapefruits are good. Yay. Um, we've gotten apples and potatoes, and every, every week it's something different. Some of the things are the same, but it's always really good. It's always a big crowd. Oh, leeks. Whatever it is, put it in the bag. Talking to people is part of the job, you know, like... Uh, it's like part of this is to to break down our isolation, you know, and to for people to get to know their neighbors and to uh, share with each other, you know, like get people to bring something that they want to share with someone. I'm not dancing. I'm not teaching dancing in until the uh, March. In in the summer, I want you to come here and do a dance class. I can do that. Well, wouldn't that be fun with all these people and we can I, have a? I, well, some people want to take the class. Yeah, I'll yeah teach we'll it. just do it right here. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you need to do it on? Ah, uh, we can we can do it here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Everybody in sneakers or 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 boots that you work in the garden. I think that would be so much fun. <laughs> garden boots. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, really the gardeners yeah. salsa. 
Yeah. <laughs> and we'll have salsa. Yeah. Oh, then we have salsa with chip. Yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. My name is Luis Canjura, and I come from El Salvador. And, uh, but I live uh, in the Bay Area for a long time since I got out here, you know, from the war. And um, yeah, you know, I learned the, the main thing is to survive, you know, and um, gardening is a way of survival. Yeah, you can, you know, because many places don't have garden. You know. I like to grow herbs for um, cooking and from healing. But I also like to, um, I like to cook. And uh, that's why uh, gardening, cooking is the same to me, you know. And I, I like to cook what is in season. And um, that way you keep healthy. You know, you are what you eat. <laughs> because it's the only way to beat the uh, healthcare thing here. Since this is a very uh, inhuman society, uh, the only way to not be at the mercy of the pharmaceuticals is by eating right. And you don't eat right, then you have to take pills and then you take supplements. And I think supplements is it's not good because you're trying to make up for the lack of um, love. You know, when you cook, there's love, you know. You love yourself and you love your kids or, or, or you invite somebody for dinner, you know, and that's love, community. That's, that's what I'm trying to do is get especially local people to be, um, have access to all this healthy, local, organic food that white, rich people have an access to. I mean, that's not exactly true, but we want the slow food movement and all that has a tendency to be elitist. So what we're trying to do is say that everybody should have access to this food, and especially people that are, um, you know, don't have money, because they're the ones that need to eat healthy the most and have diabetes, and we have all these obesity problems. So, so there's a lot of things going on here. People, there's all these hidden agendas that people don't understand what's going on. Like some people think we're just here to get food, especially like the Chinese women don't speak English, so they can't really understand, and I'm trying to... Usually I have a table set up which uh, I give out seedlings, and I usually promote food growing a little more. I think, I think everybody you know, wants to be able to have fresh, fresh food, but it's just a matter of time and money, and, and that's why something like this is so great, because you, know, you don't have to have a lot of time or any money, and you can just come here and get some fresh organic produce, and, and maybe even learn how to garden in your backyard. If you didn't know that you could, then you can get a seedling here and then start doing it yourself. Yeah, my name is Zach Carnazes, and I didn't know anything about gardening until I started coming to the farm stand and just asking questions and I originally started some plants in my my old place before I had a garden. I just had a sunny window and I started growing um, some chard and uh, sunflower and uh, then I moved um, about a year ago and the uh, landlord had this you know let me use this huge backyard for anything I wanted for a garden so um, I started taking the start plants that people were given here and during the summer time they give away lots and lots of starts so I just started planting them like crazy, and now I have this gigantic garden. It's really died down because of the winter, but I still have, um, there's still a lot growing, and it's still going to be really nice for a while. Describing plants, um, it's not my forte, but uh, they're very skinny, um, almost like a twig in the ground with like three leaves, but uh, they're really dark green with some uh, almost sharp-looking edges, but they're not. And... Um, yeah, they're just only like two inches tall, little babies. I'm giving them up now for adoption. <laughs> so they can grow into be uh, bigger, so they can uh, flourish. So I, have, I have a lot of them planted right now. But uh, yep, yeah. and their mom is somewhere in San Carlos. <laughs> she had uh, little fruits growing from her branches and uh, they were in somebody's yard and they weren't being eaten so uh, I ate one. <laughs> It was really tasty, and, and then I took the seeds home and just put them in the ground in my garden. And there you go. guess it's that easy. But um, yeah, I had no formal experience. No one, no one taught me anything. Um, just kind of asking questions around here and just learning. I, I did go to the library, checked out a couple books um, about companion planting mostly because I didn't want to use pesticides and, and that kind of stuff. I wanted to do it really organic. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really educational experience because... Uh, 
especially because it, it really teaches you, it builds that, you know, that connection with the earth and all that, which, uh, you know, a lot of times we, we take for granted and we think it's like really uh, um, like silly or something, but uh, it's really important, I think, and to feel more connected with life and, and um, you can't always feel that, especially living in a city. And so, um, so it's been really great. It's been really uh, a learning experience and it's been great to actually bring stuff back now that, uh, now that I can. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project and 90.1 FM KZSU Stanford. I'm Natasha Ruck. Today, in Medium Food, we're exploring how food has become a medium for profound changes in our daily lives, especially in urban America. In our final story, we investigate the Stanford connection to the urban farming movement and how Stanford grapefruits ended up at the free farm stand in the mission. Coming up, Charlie Mintz walks around campus with the founders of Stanford Glean, a student association dedicated to reclaiming Stanford's bounty and sharing it with others. Along the way, he discovers where Minos lettuce grows on campus and why persimmons matter. We call Stanford the farm, but we don't really mean that. The nickname's a holdover from a time when rangers on horseback roamed the land and instead of high-tech, eco-friendly buildings, there were trees. Stanford's not a food-producing living space anymore, of course. Instead, it is a Spanish colonial set piece designed to produce graduates and other types of food consumers. It's true, there is a garden, but really the only thing meant to be cultivated here is the mind. And yet if we look closely, if we take a second look at what's around us, we see that edible fruits and vegetables of all kinds are growing within arm's reach, offering their bounty to the savvy gleaner. Fun fact, we've identified approximately 140 fruit trees, gleanable fruit trees, um, and that's a fraction of what's available on Stanford's campus. Uh, I'm Caitlin Brown. I'm a sophomore public policy major with an environmental focus, and I am one of the co-founders and co-president of the Stanford Gleaning Project. Um, I'm Susanna Poland. I'm a sophomore. Gleaning is harvesting excess fruit from our landscape, officially or unofficially. Otherwise, the fruit just goes to waste, and there is no reason for that to happen. Ironically, we live in a highly productive, highly fertile area, um, and yet there are many, many hungry people um, in the Bay Area. Stanford plants, fruit trees, and a lot of other edible vegetation um, for aesthetic purposes and um, our aim is to harvest that and use that as the food source that it is, recognize it as a food source and distribute it uh, according to need. What we've done is combined uh, several resources. There was a, an existing botany map um, that mapped out edible plant species around campus and we also ran our own surveying project last spring with members of uh, Paige Chamberlain's class called Carbon Cycle, Reducing Your Impact. And so combining those two sources, we've plot plotted out visually what plant species we have and their distribution. To give an idea of the diversity, we have mapped um, soap aloe, pistachio, cherry, lemon, bunya bunya, persimmon, uh, loquat, apricot, pear, pomegranates, olive trees, peach trees, avocado trees, carob, kumquat, miner's lettuce, which grows all around campus, especially around Lake Log, um, elderberry, mint, lavender, prickly pear, black walnut, Buddha's hand, the citrus, grapefruit, tangerine, lime, uh, strawberry trees, and also fresh figs. I grew up in Houston, Texas, and there's something called loquats, which don't look particularly edible, but they are. Um, we have several loquat trees around campus. We might go buy one in the main quad, and um, our, prof our two professors uh, 
didn't want to try it at all. We were picking the loquats and like, are you sure you can eat that? I don't think you can eat that. You should be careful. I'm like, no, 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 it's, it, you can eat it. And I think that's what we've gotten a lot. People walk up to us when we're gleaning um, by the history corner and say, oh, you can eat those oranges? So um, I think that's one of the funniest things that's happened, that people really don't understand that, I guess in theory they understand that fruit comes from trees, but it wouldn't occur to them to actually pick the fruit. So let's go, let's go to a place. Let's go to the quad. We're behind the language quarter, um, near a cluster of three or four loquat trees, which are not currently in season, but when they are in season, they sprout clusters of six or eight yellow fruits that are a little bit tart and turn quite sweet when they're ripe, and about the size of, I don't know. A ping pong ball. A ping pong ball. What we have is called a gleaner, a picker, and it looks kind of like a lacrosse stick, and it has kind of these little fingers that you can use to, perfect, grab the fruit, just as Susanna demonstrated. She got, so she got a little bundle. So these are edible? Yep. Mm -hmm. You can pop the whole thing in if you'd like. Cheese skin and all? Mm-hmm. Nice. Go for it. Mm. Tart? Mm-hmm. Some people don't eat the skin, I think. Ooh. Oh, really? I eat the skin. Mm. So on an average day, you'll just like take every kumquat you can get down? We try to take only the ripest third. Yeah, and we also try to take fruit that couldn't be picked by hand. So if there's low-hanging fruit um, that people... Uh, students or workers at Stanford can pick, then they should have access to it. What's what's your favorite fruit that you've gleaned? Uh, I personally like picking persimmons a lot, just because it's very rewarding. You get lots of them, they're heavy, they look like they make a difference. Upon hearing this, I wondered what it meant for a fruit to make a difference. So I asked Susanna and Caitlin why gleaning on the farm matters. As a class, we mapped and started gleaning, um, and it's grown into uh, a much uh, a much larger organization. We have two plots in the community farm. We glean weekly and take usually around 60 pounds of fruit up into the up into San Francisco to the Julian Food Pantry. Um, it's in the Mission. Um, half our produce goes there, and the other half goes to Trees Free Farm Stand. I am going to show you a picture of. Uh, persimmons for sale. They were $1.99 each. And these are the kind of persimmons we pick on our campus. This was for sale at Andronico's in the uh, in the Stanford Shopping Center. So this is fruit, uh, especially the persimmons, um, are fruit that people, the needy people would not normally get. And it's kind of a change of pace for them. It's also a food source that doesn't need to be refrigerated. It comes in its own natural packaging, just a skin that can be put easily in your pocket. And nutritionally, they're very, very important. Um, so that homeless people, people who have access to good dental care, often can't cook harder foods um, and uh, have difficulty chewing them, which is an issue that I didn't really think about um, when starting this project, but something that was called to my attention by Paige Chamberlain, who works in an urban farm. He meets a lot of people who quite literally cannot process some of the other foods that are available. So fruits become important for nutritional value. I personally have taken fruit into the city and it really does make a difference. Even though the, the food bank is providing this Julian food pantry, we're also providing just a little extra. And it's food that would otherwise go to waste, which is not okay. Charlie Mintz is the editor-in-chief for the Stanford Storytelling Project and since this was recorded last winter, Susanna picked her major. It is anthropology, social and cultural track, with a focus on African art. She teaches a class with Paige Chamberlain in the spring. Food and community, visions for a sustainable future. The URL for the Gleaned map can be found online at storytelling.stanford.edu. So by taking a walk around campus with Caitlin and Susanna, Charlie got to see and taste how the farm can be turned into a farm after all, 
a place where food is harvested to be shared with others, not unlike the farm that opened down my street. From the Tenderloin to the Quad, we've encountered urban farmers and gleaners and looked at how they use food growing, picking, and sharing to establish and nurture relationships around them. And since Paige Chamberlain had started it all by daring me to take on his warm yellow gloves and his shovel at the free farm at Goth and Eddie, I thought it was time to visit his Stanford office to find out what he thinks the food movement is really about. My name is Paige Chamberlain and I'm a professor in environmental earth system sciences at Stanford and we're in the GeoCorner building of Stanford University. My specialty is, is working with stable isotopes, which are uh, elements with slightly different masses, same elements, slightly different mass, and using those to trace uh, biogeochemical processes as well as to look at past climate on Earth. And then I'm involved in gardening activities in San Francisco, growing produce for uh, people who need it. So basically, you're working the ground in two different ways. How do they connect? How do they connect? <laughs> very, only in a very abstract way. Um, the connected part is that some of the solutions to um, these climate issues will be done at the community level and the individual level. And, and uh, although there certainly will be government policy issues, I think a lot of things are going to come from individual communities' efforts. So I work as a volunteer at the Free Farm, which is on Golf and Eddy. And then I've built several other gardens in cities, one at a church and one at a school for autistic children where we grow the food and bring it into pantries as well. Why do you do that? <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I'm just gonna, uh, let me put uh, it this, this way. Why would why you do that? You do if, that? You, if, you, if you're in a society, in a society of, of abundance, abundance and wealth, and wealth and the fact, and the fact that I think all of us have, have certain, certain obligations, obligations, social obligations, social obligations to, to our communities to do these, to do these sorts, sorts of things. No, but seriously, Paige, why do people do it? To me, one of that's one of the really fascinating areas is why people do these things. And I think... If you look deeply at the food movement, um, which there's great interest in, that that really, although it's about food, I'm not sure it's really about food, that it's really about connecting with each other, um, connecting with your communities. And I think that's one of the reasons that people are drawn to it. I think it's also the world is a very busy, confusing place. And the process of working with your hands in a garden, shoulder to shoulder with many different types of people, I think, is uh, something that really isn't in our lives daily anymore. And I think if you really look at the food movement, that's a big piece of it. We're a community, and by working with gardens, with communities, you establish links through that. You establish the links, for example, I live in San Francisco, near the Mission District, and now know people in the Mission District and work with them. And it's these whole community structures, I think, that you're establishing around a garden and around food. So I think, I think these things are, are about food. I think you'll certainly are helping, but I think they're far deeper than that. Today's program was produced by myself and Charlie Mintz. Thanks to Jonah Willingans for his help in shaping this show. Ken Groby was the music supervisor and we have the pleasure to use tracks from Bibio, Gert Bowman, and Alessandro Ricciarelli. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, the Stanford Art Initiative, and Stanford's Oral Communication Program. KZSU would like to thank the Law Offices of Fenwick and West for their continued underwriting support. Remember that you can find a podcast of Medium Food and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Tune in next week when we'll hear stories about space, not outer space, but the spaces around us and how they affect our inner space. For the Stanford Storytelling Project and KZSU Stanford, I'm Natasha Ruck. Thanks for listening.